3: Kroger, fresh for everyone.
4: Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio.
5: Welcome to the first episode of a new season of Criminalia. This season we're talking about body snatchers and the bodies they snatched. Writer Ambrose Bierce may have summed it up best in his work The Devil's Dictionary when he wrote that a body snatcher is, quote, one who supplies the young physicians with that which the old physicians have supplied the undertaker. His sardonic would aside, Bierce wasn't wrong. I'm Maria Tremarki.
4: And I'm Holly Fry, And this season is going to be all about the lives and fates of those who engaged in the grisly business of digging up fresh corpses from graveyards. And this first episode of the season is about when and why they sold those corpses to anatomists and medical schools across London for dissection and research, and how this could be a pretty lucrative business to be in. Of course, just as in previous seasons, we are continuing to look at what really went down and the context of it all, and if maybe any of these historical activities might look different through our modern perspective. And spoiler alert, sometimes they do, Sometimes they don't. But
5: to talk about this subject, we're going to start outside of London and with Leonardo da Vinci. This may seem like a strange place to begin because many of us think of da Vinci as the painter of some very famous works of art, including the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper. And yes, he was that, but he was more than a painter. He was also an engineer, a scientist, a theorist, a sculptor, and an architect. And he was also an anatomist who completed hundreds of drawings and thousands of notes documenting his findings about how the human body worked. And his work was groundbreaking. He produced the first accurate depiction of the human spine, and his notes document the earliest known description of cirrhosis of the liver. He made structural and functional discoveries about the human heart, and he was the first anatomist known to correctly note the number and root structure of human teeth. He did all of this with the use of cadavers. In fact, in total, da Vinci dissected more than 30 corpses. So where might one get more than 30 corpses for study during the 15th century, you might wonder? Many were likely procured by body snatchers.
4: And the first recorded case of body snatching is attributed to four medical students in Bologna, Italy in 1319. So a bit before da Vinci's time. Then if we skip ahead to 1536, we find anatomist, physician, and author of one of the most influential books on human anatomy, Andreas Vesalius, exhuming corpses from cemeteries around Paris to study human anatomy. Okay, so now that we have established that there has been this tradition of digging up bodies for science in the Western world... This episode finds us in the early 1800s, where body snatchers, or resurrection men, as they were known in London at the time, were at the service of anyone who needed a corpse and was willing to pay for it.
5: Resurrectionists worked in groups in secret in the middle of the night, exhuming, or resurrecting as their name suggests, freshly interred corpses from gravesites. As sinister as this sounds, this was a business, and bodies were a commodity.
4: And this was a low overhead business to get into because all you needed for body snatching were a few basic things. A shovel, a lantern, a large bag, and a wheelbarrow for the haul. Knowing where the fresh graves were wasn't hard either. You could stake out the local burial grounds or you could bribe the gravedigger or someone in a local hospital to get you information you needed. A skilled gang of body snatchers needed less than 30 minutes to exhume a body. And those who were really good at what they did could score a dozen or more bodies in one night. You also, of course, had to be strong because this work included not just a lot of digging, but also hauling a corpse or sometimes even a coffin. And it surely was better if you had a strong stomach as well. We're going to take a break for
5: a word from our sponsor. And when we're back, we're going to talk about the increasing demand for cadavers and why supply couldn't meet that demand.
0: Can I rant for a sec? Please.
4: This episode is brought to you by Simply Safe. Listen, you listen to true crime podcasts. You know that the world can be dangerous and unpredictable and that there will unfortunately be people who want to hurt each other. And so it's kind of nice to get a little peace of mind by having a good home security system. Just take a few precautions and I recommend looking at Simply Safe Home Security. I've had my home broken into in the past and it was a terrible feeling, even though nothing that bad really happened. Aside from an intruder, I just really like knowing that I have a security setup that lets me check in on my pets when I'm not home. That is a huge peace of mind giver when I am out traveling. Simply Safe sent me a whole home security system, and I was really, really impressed by the variety of indoor and outdoor cameras they offer. And the whole thing is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com/criminalia. That's simplysafe s i m p l i s a f e .com/criminalia. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I've been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to, but on my day-to-day I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low-key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show, or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older (laughs) in that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really, like, go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie, and it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash Criminalia for 10% off your first order.
0: Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret. Pack your bags with just arrived swim, cover-ups, corset tops, and other sexy silhouettes. When the sun goes down, opt for bold and blingy styles, like the made-to-be-seen, very sexy push-up bra from the Very Sexy Collection in on-trend hues like black shine, green, and citron. And now in this season's must have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited edition bombshell escape fragrance, a free spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
3: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast growing health and wellness industry.
4: Before we get into who supplied bodies to whom, let's talk about what happened to the body-snatching business between the Murder Act of 1751 and the Anatomy Act of 1832.
5: The demand for bodies in 18th and 19th century Britain was created by anatomy professors, surgeons, and medical students for both dissection and for use in anatomy classes at medical schools. In the 1740s, the way London teaching hospitals and private anatomy schools taught medical students changed. Instead of what had been commonplace, a single cadaver displayed and dissected by an instructor in anatomy lectures, a new way of instruction, known as the Paris method of dissection, became the popular practice. This new method was much more hands-on, as each student was given parts of a cadaver to study. That meant every dissection at every school now needed not just one corpse to work on per class, but potentially dozens. Add that up across Britain and the numbers grow quickly. All parts of the corpse were dissected and used for teaching, and anything unusual, such as a tumor, a congenital abnormality, or a surprising cause of death, was preserved in alcohol in a glass jar.
4: When Parliament passed the Murder Act of 1751 it legalized the medical dissection of convicted killers as a kind of posthumous execution. But because the only bodies legally available for medical dissection were the remains of executed criminals, demand pretty quickly outpaced supply.
5: Body snatching in London peaked between 1800 and 1832, and medical schools often paid a hefty price for the product that the body snatchers provided. Up until the enactment of the Anatomy Act of 1832 in Britain, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Stealing a corpse from a grave was not itself illegal, as the corpse had no legal standing and was not considered to be
4: owned by anyone. The punishment, if a resurrectionist was caught, was relatively minor. And that was for a couple of reasons. One, evidence in these cases was hard to collect. Those bodies had been dissected, and without a body, there really wasn't a crime. There was a fresh but empty grave, but because corpses disappeared fast, usually the same night they were interred, all that could be prosecuted in court was the desecration of a grave. Authorities were known to make arrests if something other than a body was stolen. For instance, a body snatcher could be punished for the theft of the burial clothing of the corpse, but not the theft of the corpse itself. Most often, though, authorities just turned a blind eye to the whole business and most often because they were bribed, either by the buyer or the seller, or by both. Unlike the police, though, families did
5: care. The Anatomy Act of 1832 was enacted by Parliament in direct response to public outrage at the theft and sale of corpses, and it also addressed the legality of dissecting a corpse. It was designed to stop the body snatchers by basically legislating a new, and legal, and free, source of corpses. It regulated the supply of cadavers for medical research and anatomy teaching.
4: Under this new act, anatomists were given access to what were called unclaimed bodies. Those were people who had died without anyone to claim them for burial. Before this legislature, as we said just a moment ago, only the bodies of executed criminals could legally be used for dissection under the Murder Act of 1751. So this move was really quite a big change. The Anatomy Act also allowed for personal donations of a body by the individual or the next of kin to medical science. And regarding the dissection itself, the Act required doctors and anatomy teachers to obtain licenses to legally dissect donated corpses. The Act did do what it intended. It increased the number of bodies supplied to London medical schools from an estimated 300 per year to 600 per year. And those were all legally sourced cadavers.
5: So it's a little bit early, but we're going to take a break for a word from our sponsor. When we're back, we'll introduce you to the infamous Burrow Gang and talk about their influence on the corpse supply
0: chain. Escape to Summer with Victoria's Secret
1: at purdueglobal.edu.
4: Welcome back to Criminalia. Let's meet Ben Crouch and the Borough Gang.
5: In the 1810s, so roughly 20 years before the Anatomy Act was in place, the Borough Gang, or the Borough Boys, as you'll sometimes see them referred to, was London's most notorious group of body snatchers. The District of Central London, known as Southwark, had been known as the Borough since the 16th century, and it's there where the gang ran their business and stole many bodies from graves. Benjamin Crouch led the group during its first years in practice, and during his time as a resurrectionist, he became known by the evocative sobriquet of the Corpse King. Ben's background didn't exactly telegraph that he'd turned to a career of digging up bodies for quick cash. He was the son of a carpenter and was a well-known prizefighter in his day. He's described as a tall, flamboyantly dressed man with a pox-marked face who loved to wear gold jewelry, especially gold rings. He could be violent and intimidating, especially if he'd been at the
4: pub. Members of the Corpse King's gang included Bill Harnett, Jack Harnett, Joseph Naples, Daniel Butler, and a man referred to as Hollis. This is perhaps Bill Hollis. But that particular detail is a little bit fuzzy. Over more than a decade, members of this group came and went, and a man named Patrick Murphy eventually succeeded Ben as the Borough Gang's leader. But we're gonna focus on the group's beginning when Ben Crouch was involved in heading up the operation.
5: Anatomist Sir Astley Cooper, it said, may have introduced Ben Crouch to body snatching at the time when Cooper had been appointed professor of comparative anatomy at the Royal College of Surgeons in London, a position where he would have needed a steady supply of cadavers. From Cooper, Ben learned that it could be quite a lucrative business, and Cooper, it's thought, kept Crouch busy, and probably intervened on his behalf if anyone came around asking questions. Theirs was, it appears, to be a symbiotic relationship.
4: The Burrow Gang identified their targets often through connections that gave them information, but also just by loitering around graveyards and funerals, because there were always corpses that were about to be buried. They would wait until the cover of night to dig up the grave, break into the coffin, and refill the site with dirt to conceal their theft. Ben had formerly worked as a porter at Guy's Hospital in Southwark, and certainly still had connections on the inside who could share when and where to find the freshest corpses, both in the hospital burial site and beyond its yards. Hill Burial Ground, also known as Bunner or Bunner Fields, has been a burial ground and cemetery going back for centuries before our Resurrectionists. That name actually comes from Bone Hill, and the grounds were a prime target for London's Resurrectionists due to the proximity to St. Bart's Hospital in the Smithfield area of London.
5: Conveniently for us, one of the gang's members, Joseph Naples, kept account of the gang's business, a a kind of diary-slash-ledger of their work in 1811 and 1812. Joseph, unlike Ben, was considered civil, with respectful manners and a pleasant way about him. Let's take a look at his records. Adult bodies were referred to as larges, and children were smalls. Fetuses and bodies with any kind of abnormality both fetched high prices, as did teeth, which were sold to dentists to be used to make dentures for the living. Hair, too, could be sold to wig makers for a tidy sum. A sample entry from November 1811 tallies up one night's work like this. Wednesday 4th. At night went out and got ten. Hole went to Green and got four. Black crib one, Bunnerfields five. On another night in eighteen twelve, Joseph recorded that the gang stole a total of thirteen adult corpses and two children, writing quote, December second, eighteen twelve, met at Vickers Pub, rectified our last account. The party sent out me and Ben to St. Thomas's crib, got one adult. Bill and Jack went to Guy's crib, got two adults, but one of them opened. Took them to St. Thomas's, Came home. Met at St. Thomas's. Me and Jack went to Tottenham. Got four adults. Ben and Bill went to St. Pancras. Got six adults, one small, and one fetus. Took the Tottenham lot to Wilson, the St. Pancras lot to Bart's.
4: It was Ben who handled the gang's negotiations and transactions with the surgeons and anatomists. By most accounts, the gang charged two or three guineas for an adult corpse, which was considered to be a body measuring taller than three feet. They collected up to one guinea for an infant or a child. Some accounts report that Ben was smart and a pretty ruthless businessman who secured upfront fees of up to 50 guineas for a corpse to be delivered at a later time. A guinea, for any of us who aren't sure, is no longer legal tender, but one guinea is roughly equivalent to one pound and five pence in modern currency.
5: You could make good money in the body-snatching business, but the business was rough. Rival gangs would rat on each other, hoping the others would be jailed. Gangs were also rough with their clients. In one reported incident in 1816, the Borough Gang overwhelmed surgeons and anatomists at St. Thomas's Hospital, intimidating them, or, as the gang saw it, reminding them that they were the only gang the hospital was allowed to work with when it came to supplying fresh corpses. It wasn't the only visit of that nature they made around the city. Ben claimed to have secured a monopoly of corpse delivery to at least half the teaching hospitals in London, including his former employer, Guy's Hospital. I mean, who are we kidding? He probably did.
4: Sometime in or around 1817, Ben got out of the resurrection business, although not really all the way out of the business of bodies and giving body parts to people or money. Ben and a fellow resurrectionist named Jack Harnett got into the business of teeth. Teeth, they considered, were just as profitable as whole corpses, if not more so, and the pair collected jaws from corpses. Many records suggest they traveled with the British Army and scavenged teeth from the bodies of dead soldiers. These records also suggest that the men stole and sold things like buttons and epaulets from uniforms for pretty good money.
5: Ben, having saved enough money, bought himself, or possibly built, or possibly invested in, this is a bit fuzzy. A small seaside hotel in Margate. But word of his former unpopular occupation as a resurrection man got out, and it didn't take long before his empty hotel failed.
4: Broke, Ben fell back into the tooth trade, but things did not go as well this time around. Some of the records that came up in research suggest that Ben, in a pretty desperate situation, embezzled money from Jack Harnett and was imprisoned for a year as punishment. Ben did not die in jail, nor was he executed for any crime. But he did die in poverty, and his body was found in the tap room of a pub near Tower Hill in London. And according to his legend, he was still sitting upright on his stool.
5: So Holly, this is our first season and our first season cocktail. What do you have for us?
4: So I think this time around, we're going to just call our cocktail segment embalming fluid. I like it. It's pretty obvious and on the nose, but you know what? I like it. So we're doing it.
5: It's better than mine. I was just, I guess, tapped out.
4: (laughs) (laughs) This one to start off with comes with a little bit of cocktail history because I felt like It would be a little remiss if we didn't kick this whole thing off with a commonly known cocktail, but our variation on it, and that's the Corpse Reviver. Ooh, hey. So you have almost certainly, if you have gone out for drinks ever, seen a cocktail called a Corpse Reviver on a bar or a restaurant menu. It is not actually just one drink. It's an entire category of drinks. The idea of a Corpse Reviver cocktail, which is like... Initially, a hair-of-the-dog hangover cure, like, you feel like a corpse in the morning, drink this and you will come back to life, dates back to the mid-1800s. So a little after these guys were working, but still historical and interesting. Mm -hmm. We don't know how many different versions of it there may have been initially. Like I said, it is a category, so it may have been everybody had their own version. But the first one that we absolutely do know of in terms of what it contained comes from The Gentleman's Table Guide, which was written in 1871. That called for brandy, maraschino liqueur, and Boker's bitters. That's not the more famous version. (laughs) Because those, and really, if you were to go into a bar today and see one on a menu, it's probably based on one of these two we're about to talk about. And they come from the Savoy Cocktail Book, which was written by Henry Craddock in 1930. And Craddock was the bartender at the Savoy Hotel. He was also a bit of a wit, which is part of why I think his, his version has caught on. Craddock included two different corpse revivers in his book. They are known as number one and number two. <laughs> number one is a pretty simple drink. It's cognac, apple brandy, and sweet vermouth. But number two is more of a gin sour recipe, and that's the one that really has become popular and probably is the one that you're getting if you order... Something in a bar that's just called a corpse reviver. So the recipe for corpse reviver number two includes the note that one will wake you back up after a night of drinking and, quote, four of these taken in swift succession will unrevive the corpse again. Uh, so that's if you lot. drink too many, no. <laughs> you're going to sack out. So we are going to make a variation on corpse reviver number two today. And the main change that we're making to the recipe here is that we are subbing out what is called for in the recipe is Lillet Blanc. That's a liqueur that was originally made using white Bordeaux wine with orange peel liqueur and quinine liqueur. And we're going to add a component that you may already have on hand if you have followed along with our cocktails before, because I have used it in several. (laughs) So this is one ounce of gin, one ounce of lemon juice, one ounce of Cointreau or other orange liqueur. I actually used Grand Marnier, which is a little bit bitier, and that was quite nice. And one ounce of Saint-Germain, and that's the thing that we're subbing in for the Lilith Blanc. And then, as with the original recipe, you're going to add, this is a little bit of a choose-your-own-adventure, a <laughs> dash of absinthe is what's called for in the first one. And that makes it this interesting, very bitey, citrusy drink with this, like, licorice finish. But it is definitely a drink that, um, that is a drink for drinkers. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. people that enjoy the taste of alcohol and like taking a sip and discerning what's in it, that's for them. And you'll just put those all in a shaker, shake it with ice, and then you pour it into a chilled glass. However, I was like, I know not everyone is a drinker. And even people that like the taste of alcohol sometimes want something that doesn't taste that sharp. Mm-hmm. So I made a second version in which I got rid of the dash of absinthe. And instead, because we already have all those beautiful citrus flavors, I subbed out a dash of hibiscus syrup.
5: That, I see. I think I would like the one with absinthe, but I guarantee Maria, you. Maria. I have to try this one.
4: It's so yummy. <laughs> <But hibiscus laughs> anything, I'm like, I gotta try it. Like, like, it's yeah. so yummy. And it changes the profile so drastically, even though you're only including literally like, A fraction of a fraction of an ounce, but it completely shifts the entire thing and makes it feel very tropical and yummy. So if you are into sweeter drinks, go crazy. You could literally put in almost any syrup that you like or a liqueur that goes with those orange and lemon flavors. And same thing, shake it in a shaker with ice, pour it into a chilled glass. Holy (laughs) Moses.
5: Delicious.
4: (laughs) Just delicious. Delicious
5: Delicious plus... A choose-your-own-adventure drink, which are always my favorites that you do.
4: Yes. Now, this one was a little bit tricky to think about how to do a mocktail around it, because it's literally three different kinds of alcohol Mm -hmm. plus lemon juice and possibly a dash of another alcohol. But here is what I came up with. And it's quite good. And it does have similar, it's a little different, but it's still pretty similar in profile. So first, you're going to try to replicate a little bit that Saint Germain flavor, which has notes of like, peach and pear and a little bit of honeysuckle in it. So what we're going to do to try to get a little bit of that flavor is you're going to brew a cup of peach tea. If you want to be fancy, I would do a little peach tea. And if you can get your hands on a pear tea or a honeysuckle tea, combine those and brew one cup together and you'll get a really nice thing. And then you want it cold. So let it soak in the fridge with some orange zest grated into it, because that's gonna pick up what the Cointreau would add to this drink. So once that's chilled, then it's like super easy. You just do two ounces of your prepared tea, two ounces of a tart lemonade. You don't want it very sweet at all. And then splash in the syrup of your choice. So you can do a licorice syrup if you want that absinthe flavor. Or you can do a hibiscus syrup like I did with the magical variation. Because I'm addicted. Or any (laughs) syrup that you love. Test them out. That is going to go with a a citrus and a fruit flavor like that. You can try anything. I actually thought it might be fun with a habanero syrup, but I haven't tried it. So I I can't back that up with experience, but it could be fun. It could also be fun in the alcoholic version if you want to get a little... Mm If you want to really feel not the bite of absinthe, but a different (laughs) bite. And that's another one. We've talked many times about how to make like a flavored variation of simple syrup, but literally just like one part sugar, one part water, throw in whatever you want to flavor it with, let it all simmer for just a bit so all the sugar dissolves and then strain out whatever the... Other item is like your sliced jalapeno, or you can do it with ginger. A ginger syrup is so good. Just pull that right out, and then you have a yummy flavored syrup. They don't last as long as the ones you would buy commercially. You got to use that up within a couple weeks, usually, but you get some beautiful flavors. So that is our kickoff the Corpse Reviver Criminalia style. I didn't come up with a pithy name for it. (laughs)
5: That's okay. It's our first drink this season.
4: <laughs> yes, it's our, we'll call it like Corpse Reviver number 666 or something. We'll come up with a better number. <laughs> yes. But since other people have made variations and they have added numbers to them, you'll see other numbers on menus sometimes. I need to double check and see how many oh, numbers great. are
5: officially right. are like, this is Corpse Reviver 1810, but it's already taken, so we can <laughs>
4: Actually, that would be a good one. We can name it after uh, one of the years involved, like an 1810 or something. If you make it, I hope you love it as much as I did, especially with that hibiscus syrup. And like I said, the mocktail is very refreshing and yummy and complex flavors that kind of give you a nice little kick. The citrus is what wakes you up there. That's that's why it's reviving your corpse. And also probably helping you if you have a hangover. (laughs) So, yeah. But we hope you are down for this entire season of corpse theft and resurrection. (laughs) Right? Digging up
5: graves.
4: (laughs) It's grim and grisly, but in a, a much more enjoyable way than people being persecuted for things that they didn't do. We will be right back here again next week, and we hope you will join us. Criminalia is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, please visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
3: Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry.